Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would encourage you to open to the book of Ephesians. You might remember that book. We used to study it here at the church, but it has been now four straight Sundays that we have been out of the book of Ephesians because of just circumstance with Easter, Palm Sunday, and then John T. Van coupled with Jared speaking a few times. So it's been a while since we've been here. I will offer you a review to catch you up briefly on where we are at in Ephesians 4 so that it hopefully won't be too hard to follow. So as you're turning there, I want to share this uh, story that is just kind of riddled with dad jokes that transpired this past week with my kids in the car. Sometimes my kids and I get into some very bizarre conversations on our drives home. And how many of you guys know the term dad jokes or are familiar with dad jokes, right? Just very cheesy jokes that are generally pretty wholesome that kids roll their eyes and dads think are absolutely hilarious. Well, we were driving home one day from school last week. I want to say it was Tuesday or Wednesday. And Vea said, we started talking about Jake's. You guys all remember Jake's. And it was just what a shame it was. We all loved Jake's. We loved, you know, the food there. And it was just a nice place to be able to take people from out of town. And Vea said, I just, I hope it becomes something. I hope somebody buys it and does something with it. And I just off the top of my head said, you know, that building kind of lends itself. It would probably be a really nice church. It's got that high foyer in the middle and everything. And, and she's like, yeah, but what would you call it? And my dad, my dad joke's brain kicked in. And I said, well, that's simple. You'd call it Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Jakes. And, <laughs> right? and I thought that was pretty brilliant. And a second later, Second later, Silas pipes up from the back seat. Yeah, we could serve Rubens. <laughs> and then I said we would have a fine selection of Weinigers. And then Vea added in and said, don't forget Schenbergers. You got to have Schenbergers. So we've got, a, we've got a whole menu planned out for this place. Um, and uh, I, I just think it's got a lot of possibilities. So maybe the Lord is leading you to pray about that. Uh, some, some combination of dining and salvation, I would be all for that. Um, I know it's been over a month since we've been in Ephesians. So I want to begin today by offering a review of the last thing that we looked at in Ephesians, which took place in verses 17 through 19. And it was essentially two sermon, three sermons titled Eight Observations of the Lost. So I'm actually going to read 17 through 24, and then we'll dive in. So backing up to verse 17, Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus." that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and rather be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you would put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Dear Lord, what an awesome passage we have the ability to dive back into Ephesians with, where Paul juxtaposes the eight observations of the lost with what we now are in contrast to that. So I pray, Lord, that today would serve as a reminder of our identity in Christ 
and how powerful that thing is. Lord, please remove from me any agenda that would be contrary to what you would have taught and allow us to drink deeply of your scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, as a brief reminder, let's start here as a review of all of the concepts that we looked at over the three-week sermon arc, when we looked at verses 17 through 19, Paul outlines, and we went into some great detail about the characteristics of the lost. And I believe that the order that Paul lays out here is telling and important. He says that their minds are futile, their understanding is darkened, they are alienated from the life of God, and they are ignorant of the truth. That was our first sermon. The second sermon, they are these four things because their hearts are blind. And we spent an entire week looking just at what it means to have a blind heart. Therefore, because of their blind hearts, their past feeling, they've given themselves over to lewdness, and the result is the work that they do, the end of the means that they are pursuing is to work all uncleanness with greediness. That is what I would call the tangible results. And that brings us to the important necessity. And doing a little bit of research, here's a couple other that I think are actually superior to the New King James. The first one is the NASB. The NASB says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Essentially, Christ did not teach you these eight things. These are not part of Christ's plan. The NIV actually has a very translation to this as well, when the NIV says, that, however, is not the way of life that you learned. Does anybody have a notable differing translation? from either the New King James, the NASB, or the NIV. Rhonda? Um, the says that was not what you learned about Christ. That was not what you learned about Christ. Jody? Well, the earlier NIV must be is just similar, but you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Good. Anyone else? Any other variant translations? Okay, the point that Paul is describing is he's essentially saying, um, this is not what you learned, and what's the qualifier? What's the qualifier to, but you have not learned this from Christ? What does he say right after that? If indeed what? If indeed what, Kevin? Yes. Yeah, if indeed, if truly you were taught by him, then we must come to the conclusion, Paul is declaring, if indeed you were taught by Christ, so what does this open the door to? As he's looking at the church of Ephesus, what does this crack the door open to the possibility of? Do you think it's fair to say that Paul is subtly saying, you may think you follow Christ, you may think you have been taught by Christ, but you really haven't. You've been taught by something else. Your version of Christ, maybe to bring it forward to a modern parallel, your denomination's understanding of Christ. In other words, what makes us, as proclaiming Christians, think that we know Christ? Regardless of denomination uh, or affiliation or church attendance, most of us think we know Christ on our own merit. We know Christ because uh, we 
had this experience with him, or this is our interpretation, or this is what my pastor told me about who and what Christ is. And Christ, and Paul here is challenging us to dig a little bit deeper here. Now, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, that's how the NASB renders the next verse. If indeed, and I think that word indeed is important, because it's Paul saying, are you sure? Are you sure you've been taught by him? Now, I want to be very clear of what Paul is and is not saying here. He's not saying in person. It is very safe to say that most likely none of the people that Paul is writing to in Ephesus were taught directly by Jesus for two reasons. There's at least two reasons that's not what Paul's saying. Can anybody guess one or both of the reasons? Rhonda? Yeah, you got both of them. Quit hacking my computer. Um, Yeah, you're absolutely right. Two issues here. The first one is this. Paul wrote Ephesians around AD 62, which is roughly 30 years after Jesus was crucified. So is it possible that some of these people were there for the Sermon on the Mount? Sure, but when you add in the second characteristic, it becomes highly unlikely. Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, is 1,127 miles from Jerusalem where Jesus centered his ministry. That is roughly the same distance from here to Orlando. So here to Orlando, without cars, without interstates, without planes, uh, without any of that, that's a very, very, very long journey. I read something interesting on Facebook. I don't know if it's true because it was on Facebook, but it basically said that even today in America, 75% of people live currently within 20 miles of where they grew up. Curiously, how many of you would that apply to? How about that? It's about 75%. Yeah, I'm a little outside of that range. I I would say I grew up on the east side of Cleveland, uh, and that's about 90 miles from here in the eastern suburbs. But most of us, that holds true. How much more was that true 2,000 years ago without transportation like we have it today? So, because of these two facts, I want us to be be clear here. It's not that Paul is saying, you don't know Jesus unless you were taught to him directly like I was. Because even Paul can't really make that claim. He wasn't taught by Jesus directly. He was rebuked by Jesus. He was challenged by Jesus on the road to Damascus. But Paul's experience with Jesus is very different than Peter, James, John, and the rest of the apostles. Therefore, it's possible that someone in the Ephesus... saying of the true believers in Ephesus that they have been, quote, taught by. So this brings me to a pastoral question. And here is the when we proclaim today, I have been taught by Christ, what are the methods by which we would claim we've been taught by Christ? So in other words, if you say to a non-believer, Jesus teaches me, They're obviously, if they're taking that literally, they're going to say, no, Jesus didn't teach you because that was 2,000 years ago. How would you counter that and say, no, Jesus does teach me? What would be the methods of transmission that Jesus teaches you? Scripture, I think, is the first thing that comes to mind. We, in the same way that we would read the biography of someone and hear about their process and their challenges, we would say, I've been taught by the testimony of Alexander Graham Bell or Benjamin Franklin. We would also say that the testimony of Jesus teaches us as we read about him. Andy? Well, Jesus being part of the Trinity, your life 
Through the transmission of the Spirit, through prayer. Yeah, absolutely. Jesus being part of the Trinity, you can't divorce those properties. So when we say we're taught by the Spirit, when we say we're taught by the Father, we're also absolutely taught by Jesus. Uh, Jared, what do you have? Gathering of the saints, I'd say the gathering of the church, because Jesus says he's in our presence. Yeah, I actually didn't, I didn't catch that. That's a really good one. I had not thought about that one. Here's the third one I have. Um, my third one is this what I would call meditative evaluation and accountability. Now, when we hear the word meditation, we too often think of it as Far Eastern meditation, where the whole point of meditation is to empty your mind. Meditation, when it comes up in Scripture, pray and meditate on the Scriptures constantly, is the exact opposite. It's dwelling intently, thinking hard about the truths of Scripture. So I think one of the ways that Jesus absolutely teaches us is when we have this this moment where, where we're in a situation and we think hard on something, we make a decision, and then we're held to accountability to that decision by, as Pastor Jared just said, the church itself. Any other ideas or thoughts as to how Jesus teaches us today? There's actually one other slightly big one that I alluded to, but I didn't name it directly. Experiences. Like, like how we live and walk our life and then what happens in our relationship with Jesus. I've often seen it like this. Every decision that we make, if we think about your existence as, a, as every decision you make takes place in a giant circle. And as a Christian, Jesus, the cross, is at the middle of that circle. We often think of it this way. Well, I make decisions that please God. Those go inside the circle. And then I make decisions that don't please God, and those go outside the circle. And I think that's an incorrect way to view it. If you were to zoom your camera in on those dots representing your decision, you would notice that every one of those dots is not actually a dot. It's an arrow. And it's either drawing you closer to the cross, or it's moving you further from the cross. And if we take accountability unto those actions we begin to see patterns that emerge. I need to sacrifice this thing because it is consistently leading me away from the cross. And maybe some of us have sacrificed things that in and of themselves are not sin, but they're taking up time. They're they're taking up, I've given up hobbies before because I just felt like it was taking up time and I needed to spend more time with my family, spend more time in the word, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Anything else on ways in which we might be taught by Jesus. Okay, so look at the next thing that Paul says there. If indeed you have heard him and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. This is huge. As the truth is in Jesus. So I wanted us to go back to the eight marks of the non-believer that Paul outlines earlier in verses 14 through 17. And I want to ask you a simple question. Yes or no, just shout it out from where you're at. You don't have to shout it, you can just say it. Does the truth get rid of a futile mind? Does it cure it? Yes, absolutely. Does the truth lighten a darkened understanding? Absolutely. Does the truth reunite you with God? It has to. If it doesn't, it's not.
In other words, you cannot know the truth, the real truth of God, and also be apathetic to it. You can't be. It is an impossibility. Does the truth aid and correct you giving yourself over to lewdness and unholy things? I'm wondering if anyone would want to challenge that one. I mean, should it? Certainly. But would, would you guys say, I know the truth, I know Jesus Christ, I still struggle with these things? Yeah, yeah. Now, it's not the ultimate destination. It's not the ultimate formation of how you're going to be fearfully and wonderfully remade. But it is something that is still a reality in the present day. And so, if the truth is applied to the first seven things, I think it's a fair conclusion to say that we will not work all uncleanness with greediness. We will probably work holiness with selflessness. The two opposite tenets of that. So I think sometimes when we talk about truth, we just think of it as this benign thing. And my conclusion is no, Paul is teaching that truth is absolutely a solution to all of the ills that he has just outlined. And Paul tells us flatly, where is the truth found in Jesus. The truth is not about Jesus. The truth isn't even because of Jesus. The truth is not with Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. A lot of people know about Jesus. They can tell you how the world changed and continues to change because of the teachings of this guy named Jesus. And a lot of people pick and choose which parts of Scripture they can stomach and then claim, oh, I am with Jesus. To my mind, this brings what may be the most terrifying Scripture, the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 and 23, when he says, not everyone who says to me, and he's talking about the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. in Jesus. And I fear the millions of people who walk our lands today and believe that they are with Jesus because they know about Jesus, but their lives bear no reflection of being in Jesus. And I put myself in that category of fear. I do a lot of things that look to the surface like Jesus has affected my life. In Jesus means the reason for your motivations are bound to Christ. Not just the decisions that you make, but the things that drive you towards those decisions. God at judgment sees right through any impure motives. 
anything that looks good to someone else but really was done from a place of selfishness or self-gain or anything else, it's exposed instantly. I am terribly dependent upon grace because I believe my mind is so clouded and so corrupted that I have often convinced myself of being in Jesus when I was really just about Jesus. Another way to put that would be to say, how many of us have ever done the right thing for the wrong reason? Including the reason being we knew it was the right thing to do, but we didn't necessarily want to do it. We just did it because it was expected. That's tough, right? It picks deeply. In the coming weeks, we will see in verses 22 through 24 how this plays out, what it means to actually take off the old man and put on the new. For today, I just want us to dwell in a few concepts that we understand the permeative and total solution that is the truth and that the only location that truth exists is in Jesus. Pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you for this morning and this message. We pray that we have dwelt well in your scripture. I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to continue to grow and to enjoy a time of food and fellowship after today's services. In Jesus' name, amen. Any comments, thoughts, questions, reactions, reflections, redactions to this morning's message?